0: So now we're going to move into uh, our second installment in Judges chapter 2 and um, Renee is going to come up and read for us. Renee Robertson.
1: Judges 2. The death of Joshua. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to each, went each into his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of one hundred and ten years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance, in the Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel.
0: Thanks, Renee. Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing? Good. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad to have you. Uh, Let me just say something real quickly as we're thinking about next week, praying for uh, that team that's going to Mexico. I'm. Just excited and overjoyed that uh, as a church that's just barely over two years old, we're getting to send our first international mission team, mission trip, and uh, when Pastor Doug and I were talking over a year ago, year and a half ago, he was describing to me uh, this place that he and his family had been going for years and years and... And down in Mexico, and they've got a, a, an orphanage, and they've got a school, and they've got a Bible school, and they've got a kind of a care center, and they've got a clinic, and they do all this work. And he started describing it to me, and I'm kind of shaking my head. And he go, I, I said, where, where exactly is that? He goes, oh, it's in, the, it's in the Baja Peninsula, a little town called. And I cut him off and said, Vicente Guerrero. And he kind of looked at me like, how did you know that? And I said, I went there when I was 17 years old. Uh, that was my first uh, international mission trip as well. In fact, my parents led trips to that exact same spot seven years in a row. So we have got some kind of joint history there. I said, in fact, my dad and I, we poured the concrete foundations for the clinic is it still standing? And they said, yes, it's happy to report the clinic is still standing. So uh, just kind of a cool providential thing. I I don't think there was maybe overlap. They might've started going shortly after the time that my family went there. But one of the things that's so incredible about this, and you could be praying for the people is they're going there to serve. Yes. And they're going to help and they're going to be a blessing, but then they're going to come back. And and for me personally, what God did in my life was um, I went there, I saw the way that they invested in the people and in the community. And I came back with a renewed joy and a renewed passion to serve right in my own city, in my hometown where I live. So be praying for that for the team, pray for safe travels for them as well. We are in Judges chapter 2. We're just starting out on a series, a walkthrough, several months, walking through the book of Judges. And we're in the prologue section. Uh, Judges is a, a, a history book. It's a narrative book. And so last week, we kind of started with the highest view of, of the prologue. This week, we're going to kind of look at this, this transition time in the, in the period of the nation of Israel. And I'll explain more about the context in just a minute. But before we do anything else, uh, would you pray with me for this time together in the scriptures? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to come together and open the scriptures. And God, every time we do so, We get to hear you speak to us. And I pray, God, that you would uh, let these words, uh, these these sacred words, God, let them come to life in our hearts and our minds right now uh, by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would do the work that you want to do in us, whether it's challenging or correcting or shaping or encouraging. God, whatever you want to do, we, we ask that you would do that work. And God, would you help me to only teach that which is in line of the truth, of your word. And may all this be for Jesus' glory. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, question for you, show of hands. How many of you have ever played the game telephone, like The kid's game telephone, you know, where you you pass the word around the circle and you try to get the the same word at the end that you started with at the beginning. Uh, I have uh, six kids now this week. Uh, The number's always changing. But this week, uh, my family, we do foster care. So that's not a weird thing. It's just normal. The the number changes, but uh, six kids. And so sometimes we'll play, you know, that game of telephone, we'll pass the word around. And, uh, you know, I've got some kids that just, it's really hard because uh, like one kid in particular, he, he can't pronounce his R's very well. So you try to pronounce the word, and like, it always gets messed up. And I've got, that, I've got that one other kid, Like nobody ever knows what the word is, because when she whispers, like your, her lips are touching your ear, and a just a really unpleasant sensation. I'm like, I don't know what the word is, but you need to go into a different room right now, because it's terrible. And then I've got that other kid, the only time we ever get it right is the one kid, because she doesn't know how to whisper. She just says it out loud. I'm like, I'm like, the neighbors just heard that, okay? Like, everybody heard that. It's very hard in my family to get the word passed around one complete cycle. Today, we're talking about, in the book of Judges, This idea of passing faith on from one generation to the next. And just like in the game of telephone, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. When it comes to passing down the faith that we hold to the next generation, there are many challenges that can arise. There are many things that can go wrong. And as we saw in our reading just a moment ago, something really did go wrong. There's this this pivotal verse that just said, after the death of Joshua... that whole generation died off, another generation rose up that didn't know the Lord or the great work that he had done for Israel. See, so Judges is pretty early in, in the Bible. You've got Genesis and Exodus at the beginning, which talk about God gathering a people and forming a people for himself. And, and then that people, the, the, the Jews, the people of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt and God frees them. He releases them. They get to go out of slavery in Egypt. They get to go into the promised land that God has promised them after a little quick 40-year detour because of their lack of faith. And then you go through uh, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as they're moving into the land. And then you get into the book of Joshua. Moses dies, Joshua is the new leader that takes over, and they actually get to move into the promised land. They get to take possession of the land. The book of Joshua is, a, is an upward trajectory. Things are good. Things are victorious. Stuff is moving in the right direction. And then you, as the reader, you flip the page into the book of Judges and stuff starts to go downhill. And this verse, this hinge verse, verse 10 Is really where it all starts to fall apart. This generation rose up that didn't know the Lord. And so the big idea that we're going to see today is this. Faith can be shared, but it can't be borrowed. Faith can be shared, but it can't be borrowed. Every person is called individually to place their faith in Jesus for salvation. Okay? So that's the big idea of where we're going today. I'm going to read through this passage. I'm going to make some observations as we're going, and then we're going to unpack that idea a little bit more at the end. So if you want to follow along, you can do so on the screen. If you have your Bible or an app, uh, we're in Joshua 2, starting in verse 6. It says this, <clears throat> When Joshua dismissed the people, The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So again, we're in this prologue section. I remember last week we talked about Joshua died. So we're kind of recapping again. We're moving back one more time and Joshua is still alive. And here's the good days. These are the happy days. This is the victorious days. All the people, they're taking possession of the land. This promised land that God gave to his people. And the people served the Lord All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. You think about some of that great work, if you read the book of Joshua, it starts with God parting the waters of the Jordan River. It's almost like a repeat performance when he parted the waters of the Red Sea. He parts the waters of the Jordan River. The people get to move into the promised land. There is this whole situation with Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? You guys remember those stories? They had seen God do some remarkable things on their behalf. Verse eight, Joshua, the son of Nun the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years. That's a man's man right there, leading the people till he's 110 years old. I just imagine, this is not biblical, but it's just my imagination that he's like 105 and still challenging the young dudes to arm wrestling contests, right? And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the Timnath Haris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And here's our hinge verse again, verse 10. All that generation were also gathered to their fathers. That's a poetic way of saying they all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. If you, if you have your Bible or you're taking notes, underline that, highlight that verse. We're gonna come back to that again. I wanna keep going through the passage though before we dive deep on that. Verse 11, here's, here's where things really start to go wrong. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. That's a strong word, abandoned. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, let me just pause for a moment here because, you know, when we're reading these, these, these books of the Bible, particularly if you're new to the Bible or a little bit unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, especially if you're unfamiliar to the Old Testament and some of these stories, you come across a sentence like that. They served the Baals and the Ashtareth. What in the heck does that mean? What in the world is a Baal or an Ashtareth? well, I'm glad you asked. I'm here to answer your questions for you, okay? It's important sometimes to have the proper context for these types of, of things because it really helps give the weight and the, and the significance to what's happening in the passage. We're reading along. We don't want this story to just go in one ear and out the other. I believe that God has something significant for us to learn even in these Passages and even in these seemingly obscure words. So, what is a Baal or an Ashtaroth? I think uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Let's start with a Baal. I've got a picture here. I've got an image you can see. Uh, Go ahead and throw that next slide up if you would. That's a a Baal. That is uh, a little statue that was excavated in um, the the region that was Canaan. Uh, I found this image on Wikipedia so you know it's accurate. Okay. Actually, I did my homework. I looked it up. This is a real picture of a statue. Now, the word Bayal simply means master. It's a word that can be translated as master. Uh, even in times you'll see it like a servant talking to their master and they will call them the Baal. Uh, so it's a generic term, but like many words, it can have multiple meanings. And so Baal came to be the master of all of the gods. The Canaanite people during this time, they, like many other cultures, they worshiped a pantheon of gods. They had hundreds, maybe even thousands of gods. And Baal is the chief. He's the, the king of the gods. He's the Lord of lords, the God of gods, and that's uh, one representation of what he might have looked like. <clears throat> the other one, Ashtaroth, that's, that's mentioned, is the plural for Asherah or Ashtareth or Ashtart. It can be a uh, English, you know, anglicized in a a lot of different ways. Uh, Translation is a little bit inconsistent at times. But as you can tell from that image, also dug up about, you know, a little over 100, 150 years ago, this image is a female goddess, and she is the counterpart to the Baal. And it's almost as if they were Mr. and Mrs. Baal, as one commentator that I'm going to read in just a minute uh, 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 quotes. Now, Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. There's the chief master, Baal. This is at least one of his wives. And in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, there is a sexual sort of thing that's happening between the gods. This is not uncommon in paganism or pagan religions. And I'm going to read to you uh, from a biblical scholar. He's a seminary professor, a Presbyterian pastor. I'm going to read to you a slightly lengthy quote that puts some, uh, excuse me, flavor to this so you can understand it. By the way, I know there's some parents with kids in here. You're going to have some fun conversations this afternoon. Here we go. I love you. I'm here to serve, and I don't want to let you dodge any of these fun opportunities to shepherd your children's hearts. Here we go. Baal was the god of storm and fertility, and for the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops and livestock and family. So, so think about that, right? If, if you're one of these pagan, more primitive cultures, I guess you could say, you, you need the things to multiply. You need the animals to have babies. You need the grain to reproduce. You need rain to fall. So fertility is the name of the game. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had his female consort, Ashtaroth or Ashtart. In Canaanite theology and agriculture, The fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature itself was due to intercourse between Baal and his partner. But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them, which is a funny line. It's a commentary. I paid money for this commentary. This guy has a PhD. Instead, their watchword was, serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence, the Canaanites practiced, quote, sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. Pause for just a minute here. This helps give some, uh, some context as to why the Lord is upset that his people are following in this worship. You, you start to see this? The picture becoming clearer. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman ashtarts, and the idea was that this would, would, would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do their thing. And thus the rain, grain, wine, and oil would flow again. Through sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist, to encourage and bring on the great orgasm of Baal in the sky. Thus Baal would make all things new. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. Here, incidentally, is the great divide between paganism and biblical faith. In paganism, the gods must be coerced rather than trusted. Okay, you're feeling it now, right? I'm just quoting what the PhD said, okay? Listen, now you go to that line in the book of Judges, you have a little bit more context for it. You understand why this is such a big deal. You could understand why the God of the Bible who said, I've loved you, I've saved you, I've called you out of Egypt, I've called you to be my people, I've given you a land, why he would be rightly angry that the people are turning to this type of worship. It isn't just that they wanted to decorate their house with statutes, it's that they are actually defacing the image of God by using their bodies, by using their sexuality in a way that was not part of God's intended purpose for us as human beings. It's a weighty thing. It's a weighty thing. Now, some of us might be tempted to think, hey, this is 21st century America. We're Westerners. We're we're pretty progressive. We're mostly secularized. We don't do a lot of idolatry in our culture. Nobody has a shrine they go to. They're not engaging in this type of, quote unquote, sacred worship. We don't have statues on our mantelpiece. Well, that's not really the point. See, in the Bible, idolatry isn't about statues. In the Bible, idolatry is about the heart, let me talk to you about idolatry for a moment. First, first definition of idolatry I'll give you this is idolatry is the worship of any person or thing besides God. And worship meaning adoration and, and giving yourself to and, and pouring yourself out for it and praising. Let me ask you, do you know anyone that worships other things, that adores other things more than God? Let me ask you, I'm I'm going to guess that the majority of you in this room are Christians who love Jesus and believe the Bible. Have you ever found yourself loving and adoring something more than God? Second, we could define idolatry as giving ultimate significance to anything besides God. Use a a classic example, uh, you know, fill in the blank. If I just had, fill in the blank, then my life would have meaning. Then I'd be happy. Then I would be complete, right? In our day and age, the great myth, the great religious significance that's given to us, particularly by Hollywood, is that it is in the romantic relationship. If we just had the right romantic relationship, then we would be whole. Then we would be complete, right? In, in the, you know, the famous line, you complete me. As though we're somehow incomplete image bearers of God for those of you who are unmarried. I'm sorry, Hollywood doesn't think you're complete. But the Bible would say that if you give something that ultimate place of significance, that ultimate place of meaning, this is what I need to be happy. This is what I need to be complete. Well, then you're actually engaging in idolatry. So again, I ask you, do you know know anyone that's ever done that? Have you yourself ever thought that way? Have you yourself ever been tempted to say, if I just had that promotion, if I just had that house or that car, if I just had that right romantic relationship, if I just had those perfect kids, if I just had, well, fill in the blank. Another definition of idolatry or a complementary definition, thirdly, would be an intense relationship that ultimately leaves us empty and unfulfilled. I'm skipping down a little bit. In the verses I just read, it said that they went after other gods if you skip down to verse 17, it says that they whored after or prostituted themselves after other gods. The thing about that relationship, that, the, that word being used, is a strong word, strong language. But what it shows us is that it's a transactional type of love. In real love, it is about the giving of oneself to another. But when that word prostitution is used, it's about the taking from someone else, for one own one's own pleasure. So when we worship false gods, A, it's akin to adultery that breaks the heart of God, and B, it leaves us unfulfilled and unsatisfied, because we're trying to take from something, and it's not going to satisfy us. We need the pure sacrificial giving love of God to satisfy our hearts. Amen. So that's idolatry. Again, looking at those three definitions. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are guilty of idolatry? Maybe you don't have a little statue, a little little guy, a little dude sitting on your mantelpiece, but in your heart, we're every bit as much prone to idolatry as the people that we read about in the book of Judges. Amen? Now, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm for as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Wow feel-good Bible verse of the year, right? Some of you are right now, ooh, I gotta put that on my Christmas card next year, right? Like, these are ones that don't get put on mouse pads or coffee cups. You never see this one scrolling at the top of a website. What do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with a, a strong word of God's anger and God's discipline and God's judgment? I think we can see pretty clearly two things from these verses here. The first is, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. First of all, when we see this type of discipline coming, we see the type of anger coming from the Lord, it is God being consistent and trustworthy. When God formed the people of Israel, he made a covenant with them. He said, I will be your God. I will love you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. I'll provide for everything that you need. Your role is to Worship me alone and don't serve the other gods. And God actually said in his covenant with Israel, you can go read all of this in in Deuteronomy and Exodus. He says, don't worship foreign gods. Don't follow after their ways or there will be consequences. You'll be given over to the hands of the other nations. Now, God, how many of you know, God is very patient. God is very uh, slow to anger. The Bible says repeatedly, but there is a limit to where God says, you know what? I have given you grace upon grace, upon grace, upon patience, upon patience, but I have to be faithful to what I said. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's a very good thing because it means unlike us, he can be trusted, Here's what one scholar and commentator says this. He says, Yahweh, God, responds to Israel's idolatry with righteous indignation. They provoked Yahweh to anger. Yahweh's response, however, is not an out-of-control emotional outburst that is somehow beneath a deity. Rather, his anger, here it is, is faithfulness to his word. He sells Israel into the hands of their enemies because if he does not do so, he will be as faithless as they have been. Yahweh keeps his word and establishes the glory of his justice. So you need to see this as a good thing that God is faithful. But the other thing that we can see pretty clearly from this passage is that God cares deeply about his people that God loves his people. Listen, if God didn't love his people, what he would do then is just write them off. Oh, they broke the covenant? Oh, they want to worship those gods? Well, you win some, you lose some. <claps> Wash my hands, try again. No, God says, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply grieved. I'm deeply upset. And we can actually see that, that his anger is actually an expression of his love and his care. Tim Keller, who I've quoted before, and probably will quote again, <clears throat> says this, God's anger is not opposed to his love, it is the expression of it. It is because he loves his people and cares about his relationship with them that he responds with right anger when they turn from him and prostitute themselves. His anger is that of the innocent, jilted lover, but his love is that of the wonderfully forgiving husband which leads me right to verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. Time out. Okay. If this had been the story of Yah Aaron or Yah any of you, I don't know that verse 16 would have been there if we'd gone from verse 14 to verse 16. Oh, and they, they followed after other gods. They worshiped them. The anger of the Lord was kindled. What, is, what does Yahweh do? God... It says he raised up judges. He raised up delivers. And if it had been Yah Aaron, it would have been. And then the Lord dropped boulders on each of their heads and moved on. Right? Like, (laughs) I'm just being honest. It's good news. There's always good news to be found, even in the most painful and difficult of times. Listen, our God is the kind of God who always takes action to seek and save his people when when they're lost. Is that good news to you this morning? So, so don't let that, that grace in the, those words pass you by. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to, what's the word, sound city? Pity. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That, by the way, is a huge difference between the one true God and idols. Idols are uncaring. If you don't appease them, if you don't meet their demands, they move on. Our God, the one true God, is a God of mercy and compassion and pity. He feels. He feels. This is a, a side point, but sometimes people have have. Um, let me start with this. Sometimes people can get into trouble because they trust too much in their emotions. Do I get an amen from any of the emotional people here? Okay, and so we know that emotions can can sometimes be an unreliable gauge, and so we need to have thought and we need to think deeply and have truth. But sometimes then we we swing the pendulum back the other way and we start to denigrate emotions and emotions are bad and you shouldn't have emotions. Look, God has emotion. God has emotion. I think that emotion untethered from intellect is dangerous, but I think that intellect untethered from emotion is also dangerous. We need both in the right relationship, in the right proportion. I just want you to see that that's in the character and the nature of our God. Verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. We talked about this last week, but in case you missed it, it's a downward spiral. The book of Judges, just in case you want to know how depressed you're going to be in a few months, it's not going to be happy, all right? The book of Judges is like the breaking bad of the Bible. It just gets worse the longer it goes on. This is the cycle. They would go after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and because they have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Again, tests can be failed, but tests can also be passed. There's grace in this in that God is not indifferent. Again, he doesn't just wash his hands of the people. He says, no, I'm going to force the issue. I'm going to keep coming back to them. I'm going to leave these other nations here to keep reminding the people of how good they could have it by worshiping me instead of getting stuck in slavery and idolatry. So this again, this is God's grace. He's going to force the issue. Chapter three, verse one. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war and to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. Kind of a, a report. We're finishing up the prologue here. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Hamath. That sounds like a Jedi uh, to me. If any of you expectant mothers are looking for names. There's one right there. Uh, These nations were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. And the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now verse 6, listen to this carefully. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. I want to address something briefly here, but it's important. There have been times throughout the history of the Christian church, particularly in the United States of America, where this verse and others like it in the Old Testament, there are many, have been used to justify an attitude against racially mixed marriages. People have pointed to verses like this and said, see, God doesn't like it when people of different ethnicities or different races marry. I need you to understand a couple of things. Just because something is reported in the Bible doesn't mean that we're supposed to just automatically follow it or not follow it. Also, there are things in the scripture that maybe are a little unclear. And the principle is, whenever we come to something that's unclear in the scripture, we interpret scripture by scripture. We look to other points in the scripture to see what the Bible has to say. And I can tell you this, as I read through the Old Testament, I see examples of people like uh, Moses marrying the the Kenite woman and her whole family being adopted in, non-Jews being adopted in to the family of Israel. We actually read about them last week in chapter one that they got to enjoy the blessings of the land right alongside the Israelites. Read about stories in the book of Joshua where Rahab, the woman from Jericho, the prostitute that welcomed the spies, she was saved from the destruction of the city. She was adopted into the family of Israel, became part of their people. I Read about stories coming up in the book of Ruth. We're gonna study Ruth in May as kind of a pause to Judges. As it happens during this time. Ruth, a Moabitess, a foreigner, marries Boaz, a good Jewish man, follows and worships the one true God of Israel, becomes an ancestor of King David and of Jesus Christ himself. So friends, this cannot be about God's opposition to interracial marriage. This has everything to do with worship. It has everything to do with who will you remain devoted to, I also know that it has nothing to do with racially mixed marriages because if you flip to the very end of the book in Revelation, it says that Jesus is going to have a bride made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So that is great news. There's a, a racially inclusive marriage at the end of the book. This has everything to do with faithfulness in worship to God. And in my time as a pastor, even in my time as a Christian, I have seen... At times, people in idolatry say, yeah, but I'm just so lonely. I'm just so alone. I will just I will marry anybody. Bible-believing Christians, people who follow Jesus, end up marrying a non-Christian, and guess who ends up compromising? Guess who ends up having to slide? Guess who ends up having to give in? If there's anybody here who's, you're not yet married, you desire to be married, you're having a hard time finding that good Christian man, that good Christian woman, just hold out do it God's way. Don't settle for the ease and convenience of, oh, this will be, be better. Do it God's way. I, I've, I've yet to see it go well. I've yet to see it go well. I'm not saying God can't do miracles. And I'm not saying that uh, people, even in this room, you know, you got saved because you started dating a Christian. God is sovereign over all things. And he often works through foolish people doing foolish things. But I'm just saying, trust God on this. All right, we We clear? that wasn't awkward enough. Let's just keep going here. Uh, I was telling the team this morning, like, look, we're going to deal with God's sovereignty and salvation. We're going to deal with, you know, all this, you know, stuff about passing on faith, going to deal with the sexual worship of Baals, and oh yeah, interracial marriage. So it's just another Sunday at Sound City Bible Church. Don't worry about it. And they're like, sounds good. You, you go do that, Aaron. Okay, here's where I want to, here's where I want to turn our attention for the last few minutes here we have. When we read this story, that's the end of the prologue, We're going to kind of move into individual stories of the judges here, but we we finish this story, we're kind of left with this question, like, what in the heck happened? How did we go from, at the beginning of chapter 2, this this really glowing description of this generation. They loved God. they, They were faithful to God. They knew him. They knew his ways to this generation that just did not know the Lord. In fact, that word, to know, uh, you, 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 those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the word to know, it means more than just intellectual knowledge. It means relational and experiential knowledge. In fact, it'll even say things like, you know, a man knew his wife and then they had a baby. are like, whoa, okay. That's, uh, I don't think it was just his mind that he was using. So uh, knowing is a relational term. It's an intimate term. And so when the author of Judges is saying that this generation did not know the Lord, what it's saying is they did not have relationship with God. So what happened? What happened? How does this How does this happen where, where people are following God and then they don't pass off their faith to the next generation? Well, let me let me offer you this morning four observations that are, are biblical truths that we need to learn how to hold intention, and this is going to be challenging. Some of you are going to be like, yeah, I really like this one. I really don't like that second one. The third one's okay. That fourth one really stresses me out. And the idea here is these are all biblical truths and it's going to be really hard for us to understand exactly how they all work together, but we know that in God's sovereignty they do. So let me share with you these four things. Kind of a biblical survey, if you will. The first one is this. Parents, you hold the primary place of responsibility for the spiritual formation of your children. When I was a kid, uh, my parents became Christians when I was about three years old. I quite literally grew up in church. I had many wonderful Sunday school teachers who I'm thankful for, many wonderful people, adults, friends, uh, older kids in the church community that told me about Jesus. Uh, I I went for a few years anyways to a private Christian school. I had teachers who did things like pray for me. I had my 10th grade English teacher gave me a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis because I wouldn't stop talking and getting detention in her class, and so she said, I need to fill this kid's mind with something good so that when he talks, hopefully something good eventually comes out. Side note, years later when I became a pastor, I was a worship pastor at church, she was a member of that church, and so I went from being her student in 10th grade to being one of her pastors. That was weird. But but I had these people in my life who, who poured into me, who invested in me, but at the end of the day, by God's grace, I can say that it was my parents who most consistently talked about Jesus to me, read the Bible to me. In fact, when my dad got saved, I was three years old, we read the kids' Bible together for the first couple years because that's about all that his mind could understand at the time. He he learned about the Bible, learned about Jesus by reading the kids' Bible to me. If you are a parent of a child, I'm so glad that you're here. We, We love our kids' ministry. We love all the volunteers that are serving in there. Maybe you've got your kids in private Christian school, but hear me on this. It is your job to teach them about Jesus. You have the primary place of responsibility. We see that in, in passages like Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21, where it talks about, hey, you need to teach these words that I'm giving you to your kids. You need to write them on the doorposts of your house. You need to talk about them when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. You need to when you, when you come back home, when you leave your home, you just need to talk with your kids all the time about the ways of the Lord. So parents, hear me on this. You've got a big job to do. You've got a big job to do. You have a responsibility to share that faith, with your children, if we're going to see that legacy of faith passed on to the next generation, I had a conversation with a man uh, just recently, a member of our church, who said that he's a fifth-generation Christian. His parents, grandparents, great grandparents, great great grandparents—they can trace a legacy of faith. Praise God for that. Maybe you're maybe you're the first one. Maybe your parents were not believers, and and now you're a believer in Jesus. Well, guess what? You're, you're starting a new chain. You're the first link in, in a new chain of faithfulness to Jesus. And I want to urge you, take that responsibility seriously. Don't pass it off on somebody else. Even, even as I go to my second point here, which is that others, all of us, have a responsibility. Let me, let me back up for one second here real quick. I, I want to get to this, but, but I need you to understand, here's some ways that parents can fail, okay? Can we just real talk for a moment, Parents? This is a church. We're gonna be honest with each other. The first way that parents can fail is by being legalistic. Parents can be legalistic. It's all rules and no relationship. It's all do this and no why. Talks about in Ephesians, actually also in Colossians, the apostle Paul writes, parents, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger. They're children, Proverbs says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, so you should just expect foolishness, okay? Why are you being so foolish? Because they're a kid. And God put you in their life to help teach them and to train them. Don't go into legalism. If that's one ditch on the other side of the road, the other ditch is, secondly, license. No rules, no boundaries, no instruction. Oh, my parents left me to figure it out. I turned out okay. I'm gonna let them figure it out. No, Proverbs says you're to train a child in the way that they should go. So you have a responsibility. Don't don't give into legalism, but don't fall into the the trap of license either. I'll just let them figure it out on their own. No, God's given you a very important responsibility. And the third way that parents fail, probably most commonly, is just hypocrisy, plain and simple. Pure, unbridled hypocrisy. In Deuteronomy, it talks about take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and, and make them known to your children and your children's children. Say, hey, watch how you live your life. If you come to church on Sunday and read the Bible on Sunday but then the Bible is never opened in your home and the things of God are never discussed in your home and, and your, your children struggle to see how what you're professing to believe makes any connection to your life, well, then, then you might be a hypocrite. Can I just say, all of us as parents are hypocrites? Your kids, your kids have a unique window of access into your life. They see you at your worst because they live with you and they caused it. Okay? I'm just right like your kids are going to see your sin. if you if you if you're trying to pretend like you're some perfect parent, you got to drop the charade. They see it. They know the facade. I had man, I, one time this was a few months ago, my youngest is 4, little girl, just adorable as can be, the cutest kid ever, of course. And I had lost my temper and I had snapped at her and I had shouted and I was, I was rude and I was harsh. And she looks up at me with tears welling up in her eyes and she said, Dad, you have to obey God. <laughs> 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 like, seriously? <sighs> oh. Nothing will humble you more than having to get down on one knee and look a kid in the eye and say, I Sinned and I'm sorry, and that was wrong. And I need God's grace and I need God's forgiveness in my life too. Parents, do you repent to your children? Are you the lead repenter in your family? I screwed up. I need God's forgiveness. I don't know really what, if any failure that the parents had in this situation, the book of Judges doesn't really make it clear. This is my guess. Uh, this is not, you know, scriptural truth. This is my, my hypothesis is the parents had experienced a lot of success. They're moving in. They've got prosperity. They're doing well. My guess is they probably spoiled their kids. They probably went a little bit too much towards license. That's just my theory. I can't, you know, doggedly defend that, but it, it seems like maybe that was what happened, where they're prosperous, and then they just kind of let things play out. I don't know take that for what it's worth. Here's the second thing I want you guys to see. As I mentioned just a moment ago, it's not just parents, but every Christian has a responsibility to share the gospel with the next generation. So all of you people who are not parents, you just checked out for a minute? Gotcha. Here we go. Every Christian has a responsibility to share the gospel with the next generation. In Romans 10, for example, the Apostle Paul is saying, how are they going to believe unless someone comes and communicates the message? And how are, how are they, somebody going to you know, preach unless they're sent? He's saying you know, it's, it's important for all of us to share the good news of the gospel, not just with, with everyone, but in particular with children. We see this in, in the book of Matthew where Jesus is, is ministering and he's preaching. And it says that kids are trying to get to him. I love that kids loved Jesus because that means he wasn't to grouch. I mean, kids don't like grouches, and so they're coming to Jesus You do the math. But the disciples are stopping them. They're saying like, no, you, don't, you stay away from Jesus. He's big, busy, and important. And Jesus said, you better let those kids come to me. I want those kids. I love those kids. And so those disciples, many, most, all of them were not themselves parents, but they had a responsibility to help point those children to Jesus, I want to just take a moment and sincerely thank and even brag on all of those of you who serve our children and our students in our kids and our, our youth ministry. We, we did something a little different this morning. We, we gathered together early after breakfast. We, I, I got all of the people who are serving in kids today, and we gathered around them. We laid hands on them, and we prayed specifically over them because what what you may not realize is as important as what is happening in this room is there is another gospel message taking place in the wing directly behind you. And there are kids whose lives are being eternally impacted right now through the faithful service of men and women, many of whom are not the parents themselves, but are just faithful, godly people who want to make a difference in the lives of others. So thank you. And if you don't already do so, not only should you shake their hands and pray for those volunteers, but you should give them $20 bills, okay? That's just a suggestion. Kids ministry volunteers just shot through the roof. Man, engagement is at an all-time high. I, I just want you to understand, even those of you who are not parents, maybe you're an empty nester, maybe you're not yet married, maybe you're a married couple, but you don't have children of your own, Thank you for those of you who invest in, in, in the community groups. Thank you for those of you that, that take that part to play. Like I want to share the good news of Jesus with that next generation. It's all of our role to pass on that faith. Now, third one as we get some tension here. Ready? Every person individually has a responsibility to respond to that message of the gospel. And as much as you as parents want to shepherd your kids, as much as we as the greater community of faith want to pass on that legacy of faith, we cannot force anyone to accept Jesus. Amen? Now hear me on this. There's a a passage in Ezekiel 18 where God is offering a rebuke through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, hey, there's this saying. I hear hear this, this proverb or this saying. It says, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. God says, knock it off. I don't want you to say that anymore. Basically, it's, well, I'm this way because my father did this, that, or the other thing. I'm this way because my parents. God says, no, no, no. Everyone is responsible for their own sin. Let me just speak to any of you here who maybe you've been riding on the coattails of someone else's faith. Your parents were Christians, your parents followed Jesus, and you think that you're good just because they have faith, just because they went to church, just because they went to, you know, they read the Bible, whatever. You need to know that God calls each and every single one of us to an individual relationship with Jesus. When we hear the message that Jesus died on the cross to to forgive us of our sins, that he rose again on the third day, there's always a, how are you going to respond? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that that you have broken God's law? Do you believe that you've broken his commandments? Do Do you believe that Jesus not only died on the cross for you, but that he rose again on the third day and he's alive, proving that all of his claims are true? Do you believe that? If so, you need to respond. You need, listen, your prayer doesn't need to be fancy. God's not interested in the eloquence of your lips, but the sincerity of your heart. God, I have, I've sinned, I've messed up. I want your grace. I, I believe that Jesus died and rose again that I could be saved. I want to I trust in you individually. It doesn't seem like these children did that. It seems like the weight of the responsibility in this passage, again, this is just kind of my gut. This isn't God's honest truth, but my gut kind of tells me that you know, the, the, the children, that younger generation, they, they didn't take the baton, they didn't want to know the Lord. They didn't know, they didn't want to know the stories of of what he had done for Israel. And then here's the fourth one, and this will really stretch some of you here. The fourth point is this God is ultimately sovereign over salvation. The Bible teaches that all of us are born in sin, and every single person, one out of every one person, would go to their grave choosing sin and folly and rebellion and that God in his grace and mercy has predestined some that he breaks through their stony wall of resistance, pulls them out of their rebellion, gives them a new heart, gives them a new spirit. The Bible uses words like predestined or elect or chosen before the foundations of the world. And so we need to acknowledge there's a mysterious element here. We need to acknowledge there's a mysterious element here. We don't understand, A, how all these different pieces work together. Are you telling me I don't have a choice? No, I'm telling you, you do have a choice, but it's only predicated upon God's choice first. Are you telling me I don't have responsibility for my choices and action? No, I'm telling you, you do have responsibility for your choices and action, but the good news is that Jesus, through his death on the cross, took responsibility for your bad choices and paid the penalty that you deserve. And his death is effectual. His death is accomplishing something in your life. Sometimes people object to this idea that God is ultimately sovereign over salvation. They say, well, if I believe that, it just it makes you prideful. Like, oh, I'm one of the special chosen ones. I, I, I would argue the exact opposite. How could you have chosen me, God? Who am I, a, a sinful, broken person, that you loved me and chose me? Some people would say, well, it, it makes you lazy. If you believe that God's just sovereign over salvation, it just makes you lazy. I, I, I encountered this actually uh, in high school. I, I met some dudes who, um, you know, pardon the phrase, but I, I call them crappy Calvinists because they were like, oh, well, God just chooses people to be saved, so I don't need to go out and share the gospel with anyone. <laughs> That's not true at all. If we've been chosen, if we've been saved, if we've been predestined, then we've also been saved unto good works. And my goodness, we've got to respond I can't believe what you've given to me, God. Let me go share that with others. And you understand that God works through means. Yes, he has chosen people sovereignly, but he works through just ordinary, messed up people like you and me. Some people argue and say, well, no, it takes away hope. It's just fatalistic. God's sovereign over salvation. We can't really do anything. It's all just a big puppet show. And I disagree wholeheartedly. Because if God is actually sovereign over salvation, it means that there's hope that he could save someone. If God's not sovereign over salvation and I pray for somebody, God, would you save this non-Christian person? I know all I'm doing is hoping. It's a wish and a prayer. But if God's actually sovereign in salvation, then I can pray with faith and with confidence that God actually has the power to do what I'm asking him to do. God can save anyone. God can save everyone he's sovereign over it. There's a mysterious element there. I wish I could tell you why some walk with Jesus, why others don't. Ultimately, we need to share. Ultimately, they're responsible, and ultimately of ultimately, God is sovereign. Let me just close with this thought. Some of you in here, maybe there's a kind of a variety of responses or reactions. Some of you in here right now you need to take that step of faith. Don't ride on somebody else's coattails. Don't trust in somebody else's prayer. It's time for you to come to Jesus individually. And you feel God just tugging on your heart right now. I want to make this my relationship with God. And I encourage you to do so today. In just a moment when we respond, today's your day. If you feel God just pulling on your heart, don't don't deny him. Some of you here are parents or maybe family members, friends, you're, you're feeling um, maybe a conviction. Yeah, I need to get more invested in my kid's life. Yeah, I need to get invested in these other kids' lives. Here's the difference. If you're feeling guilt, I don't, want, I don't want you to be feeling guilt. Guilt is hopeless. The conviction of the Lord has hope because it points us to Jesus and his perfection on our behalf. Guilt is like, I stink, I'm terrible, and I need to just do better. That's, we don't have time for that. I do have time for the conviction of the Lord. God, help me. By your grace to respond to what Jesus has done, to love my kids better, to love my nieces and nephews better, to love the kids in our children's ministry better. And maybe lastly, some of you maybe are here today and you're feeling a little bit of discouragement or despair because you have older children who for whatever reason or another are not walking with the Lord. And I have had conversations with many people in this church who have been in that point of just Sadness, frustration, there's regret. Maybe I didn't do something right. Maybe I didn't love them good enough. Maybe I didn't point them to Jesus enough. Listen, I want you to understand two things. Number one, if you are in Christ, there's no shame or condemnation for you. Even if you were, I'm not saying you were, but even if you were the worst parent that ever lived, you're shame free in Christ. His death on the cross is sufficient for your sin. And secondly, Until the day that that person takes their last breath or until the day that the sky splits open and we see Jesus, there's always hope. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop loving them. Don't stop sharing the gospel with them. My wife and I sometimes pray for non-Christians in our lives. God, would you just surround them with so many Christians? It's obnoxious. That's what we pray. (laughs) In their work, in their neighborhood, in their schools, just get them, God. I've seen him answer that prayer. It's pretty funny. Don't give up hope. Can I pray for us? God, I I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you, God, that um, no matter where we are, God, whether it's needing to respond to you for the first time, whether it's needing to take more ownership over uh, sharing our faith with our kids, or whether it's, God, just feeling a burden over kids that are not walking with you. God, I pray that you would let us feel the hope that is in the gospel, that in Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven and all things are made new. God, thank you that you're not like one of these idols that's got to be convinced. God, you're always the one that takes the first step. You're always the one that comes to us, takes action on our behalf to give us grace. We pray that we respond now to that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.